Welcome to HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. Well, we are on to episode 12 this week, uh, once again in our separate locations due to the virus. Um, if you hear various noises from our houses, uh, bear with us as uh, we're doing the best we can to carry on with the podcast in the midst of shelter-in-place orders that are now yes. statewide for Pennsylvania. So, and along those lines, that those noises include screaming babies. Stephen and I both have newborns at home, so please uh, bear with us as we deal with that as well. Yes, I always like to think of that though as the the way God looks at us. We're all children. And many times we're crying out to him. So that's right. Um, I, I sometimes think about that, like in, in worship service when, you know, the babies are crying and you're like, oh, it's frustrating. But I, I think it can be a beautiful thing uh, if we think of it in the right, in the right light. It's right. They just have the right perspective on things. So uh, what are we talking about today, Stephen? We are in Mark chapter 11. Uh, Jesus has been marching toward Jerusalem and today he comes to the holy city and is going to find something very different than what he'd hoped to find when the king comes to his vineyard or to his city. Uh, We'll see that uh, image used a lot in this chapter. So let's begin. I'm reading from the ESV with Mark chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they, and they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Here we are getting to the last week of Jesus's life, and he gets to Jerusalem at Bethpage uh, in Bethany near the Mount of Olives. Where is that, Stephen, in relation to Jerusalem? Um, It's just to the east. Um, So as he's coming in this way, one of the first things he would see would be the temple. And um, as he goes in, kind of down the the valley, there'd be the Brook Kidron that he would cross and then up into the city. And um, he, at the very end of this, he's going to at least just step into the temple at the end of the day and look around and observe. But it's amazing to think about this, that Jesus is coming uh, to the capital of, uh, of Israel, to where the center of worship, where the temple was, and the place that ought to be the heart of the worship of the God of Israel. I mean, as they used to call it in the Old Testament, the city of David, right? The, the mm-hmm. great, 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 whatever, grandfather of Jesus Christ. You've got King David. Um, and, of course, Jesus 
you will see him taking his royal walk into his city uh, as the king. But of course, this is a little bit different of a king's walk than what uh, a lot of kings would have, isn't it, Stephen? That is right. Is Jesus is going to be coming in not as just the exalted king, but as the humble king. But what he's doing here is going to be very significant to the Jewish audience that he's coming to. Because what he does is he, he, very, he plans this out. This is not like a, ah, I get a cold at the last minute. No, no, he plans this out and says, go ahead. And there's a little bit of prophecy going on here. Go and find this specific cult. Ask them about it. If they, if they give you any trouble, here's what you say. And so he gets um, this cult. And it's brought to Jesus, and Jesus wants to come in in this particular way because of a prophecy in the Old Testament. And in, uh, it's in, from the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, there is a prophecy about the king coming to Zion, and Jesus is going to be fulfilling this. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is, again, you you, you picture the white horse here, right? If the king is going to ride into his city, you get the most majestic beast you've got and put him on that. But a colt is a beast of burden. Like it's not a majestic animal. And yet this is a symbol of Jesus' humility as he rides into his city. But when he does this, what are the crowds doing? Oh, man, they're going crazy. They are shouting out. They are, in fact, going out into the, uh, into on the, along the road, getting the branches, throwing them down. They're treating him as much like a king as they possibly can, as much as with it, what's within their limit. And, uh, I mean, you even have as much as Jesus sending people ahead of him as he enters into his kingdom. I think that's a really cool part of the story where Jesus says, you know, go into the city and it's going to be like this and find the cult and just say, oh, the Lord has need of it. And you know how awkward that would be to just kind of like walk into a city, find the cult, take it away and just be like, the Lord has need of it. But they do. They go in. They do exactly as Jesus said. Sure enough, somebody does ask, why are you taking this cult? And they say the Lord has need of it. And they gave them permission. You know, And this is already kind of whetting our appetite for explaining to us the amount of authority that Jesus really has. When it says the Lord has need of it, that's enough. No more questions asked. You do what the Lord said. And so they're treating Jesus like a king and that they're going ahead of him to proclaim his way, uh, much like John the Baptist did, actually. Yeah. And the people here that are praising Jesus as he's coming in, they realize what Jesus is doing. He is picking up on these Old Testament prophecies, and he's kind of putting himself in the position of the king by riding a colt into the city of Jerusalem. And they use some other Old Testament passages in their praise of Jesus. Um, They're quoting from Psalm 118 when they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, the, The phrase Hosanna is one of those Bible words that means 
Oh Lord, save us. Um, or, you know, hear us. And it kind of came to become a word of praise, but it's what you would say to the one who is in power, praising them because, Hey, they can save you. Um, it's, it's kind of tied to the name Joshua, uh, or Yeshua, which is also Jesus name, but Hoshana or Hosanna is that same idea of salvation is part of that word. And in Psalm 118, in verse 25 and 26, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so the save us, we pray, is where we get Hosanna from. And then blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was a psalm that talks about the king coming to his city. And so the people recognized, this is the son of David. This is the king that was promised. And now he's come in. Now, I think they have a very different idea of what kind of king. Yeah. I mean, uh, also put yourselves in the shoes of some of the high priests that are watching this happen. It's like, what is this guy doing? Is he coming to take over our city? Is he proclaiming himself to be some type of king? And we're going to learn that's exactly what they think. And that's why they end up having Jesus killed later down the road. But these people, everyone involved, have a incomplete idea of what kind of king Jesus really is. Mm -hmm. And so as we read, that will become more evident. Yes. Well, let's read this next part here. Um, how about verses 12 through 25? Yeah, let's read that. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. So this can be a little bit of a, a strange thing to read. Uh, Jesus is on his way in the next day. He's staying in Bethany. And he sees a fig tree on his way in. It's like, well, why, are we, why are we talking about this fig tree? This is going to become an analogy for Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. 
from a distance, how does the fig tree look? Looks pretty good, man. It's got yeah. leaves on it. It looks like that's a place I can go and get a good, nice fig. That's right. And so he comes to it and there's no figs. It looks like it should be bearing fruit. But in this case, it wasn't the season for figs. But it's going to become an analogy for a tree that bears no fruit. It has leaves like it's alive. But when you get close, there's no fruit inside. There's nothing yeah. that's actually beneficial about the tree. And so he curses the tree and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples hear him say this. Yeah. And so this is another start of a Mark sandwich, as I like to call it. He starts off with a slice of bread and uh, he's going to explain it to us here in a second. Mark is, and then he's going to come back to the fig tree. But yes. I personally, I love the disciples. It says, and the disciples were listening. They're like, oh, wow. Like, that was weird. Like, why, <laughs> right. why, why did he, why did he do that? And they're, they just, but at this point they've seen Jesus do some different things. And so they just, apparently they don't say anything about it and they don't really think much about it as often they don't. And they just kind of move on into the next section of the story, which is that they come into Jerusalem and uh, Jesus, a lot of people know this story kind of goes crazy. I mean, he, he goes in and he just is, yelling at people and telling them they ought not be making uh, this temple a common place of, of exchange of goods and services. And he's quite upset about everything that's going on. Yes. And again, we're, we're entering into Passover week here. So Jerusalem has travelers coming in from all over the world. And this is becoming a, it's a, a center of attention. And Jesus goes in in the temple, in the very heart of what ought to be the pure worship of God, he finds people buying and selling. And we know from other historical sources that at times what they would do is, I mean, this is, this still happens today. Basically scalping is uh, people are there and people had to travel from a long way away and change their money to local money they had to buy animals for sacrifice and the inflation rate was crazy like they would be charging people multiple times the normal prices for these animals and so this is a they're reeling and dealing in the temple and making a lot of corrupt profit which, which started with something that was approved of by the law the, the law made exceptions for those who didn't have as much money or were, who were coming from such a long distance it made provision for that for these types of things to be bought and to be sacrificed. But as we've seen the Pharisees and the Jews of the day doing, they take what the law is and pervert it and take it on its own and take their own spin on it. And it becomes this perversion of what God initially intended it to be. And Jesus being God in the flesh, he sees that in these people. He came to expose the darkness of the Pharisees. And so that's what he does. He says in verse 17, is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a robber's den. This is supposed to be the place where people come from all the nations to pray to Yahweh, to pray to God, and yet you've turned it into a robber's den, a, play, a common place, a common marketplace. You have taken what used to be holy and made it common, and Jesus obviously has a problem with that. Yes. And he quotes here from Isaiah 56, 7, and uh, he kind of makes a reference to Jeremiah 7 and verse 11 about making his house a den of robbers. So he's 
quoting scriptures they would have been familiar with. And they would have said, oh, we're not like our fathers. We're not corrupt like that. And he says, no, you've done the same thing that God's people were doing 700 years ago. And it resulted in the destruction of that temple. It resulted in God withdrawing from the temple and that temple being leveled. And that's kind of where we're going with all of this is Jesus is going to judge what they're doing in this place. And ultimately, in a couple of chapters, he's going to tell them how this place too is going to be leveled like it was back then. Now, what's interesting about this is Jesus has come to the temple where you hope to find fruit. You hope to find a vineyard, uh, a spiritual vineyard that is blossoming and flourishing. And this ought to be the heart of it. And he's found a den of robbers. He's not found a house of prayer. And so he's just like that fig tree. He comes to the fig tree and this is the next day. Um, In the morning they see the fig tree. And I mean, in one day, this tree from top to bottom is just completely withered. Like it's done. And they're like, Whoa, look at this fig tree that you cursed. And Jesus uses the opportunity here. He's already really made the connection to the temple. If they're thinking about, Jesus wasn't just mad at this fig tree. He was using this as an analogy for what he found in the temple. The day before, he came to a tree that should have been alive. It looked like it might have been alive. But when you get in there, it's a den of robbers. And so he's going to curse it. It's gonna, he's going to bring it down. Jesus uses this opportunity to teach about prayer for a moment, though that Jesus does this miracle about, you know, he curses the fig tree and the fig tree's done, man. And he says, you need to have faith in God and just a little bit of faith can, so to speak, move mountains. I don't think Jesus is speaking literally here. He's using a, a kind of prayer, uh, parable language um, as he talks about these things. But he says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, it'll be yours. Again, this isn't just a blank check, health and wealth thing. But he's saying you need to have faith in God and trust in God and God will listen to your prayers and grant those prayers. He also says in verse 25, you need to forgive other people. And that's a really important part of God hearing your prayers. If you're not forgiving other people, God's not going to forgive you either. So Jesus uses this opportunity to speak about the power of prayer as well. Yeah, I mean, it's clear the focus is on the Lord, not on what we want to ask for, but the focus is on what God can do through prayer, and God is the one that's able to deliver. God is going to be the one that's moving the mountains, so to speak. And so I think it's really cool to see that in connection with everything else that Jesus has talked about. Um, So I think this is a really cool chapter and a good end to the Mark sandwich. So that gets us into this next challenge that they bring to Jesus. We're picking up in Mark 11, verse 27, if you're reading along with us. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, 
neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, so Jesus comes back to Jerusalem. He's walking in the temple, and all these people actually, I think, have a pretty good question for him. I mean, if you have just walked in and destroyed everything there in the, in the courtyard or there in the temple, uh, everyone's going to be like, hey, um, what gives you the right to do this? Uh, I kind of think about like even amongst siblings, you know, your siblings, older siblings specifically are telling you what to do. And you say, by what authority do you tell me what to do? You know, why did mom tell you to tell me that? Or you're not in charge, you know, and they're just like, why did you do this? And at this point, Jesus has already demonstrated pretty well who he is and what authority he has. So you can kind of see the the irritation in Jesus at them asking this question. But it's really cool, as we've seen Jesus do so far, he answers questions with a question. Mm -hmm. And uh, the question he asked them is really good. Uh, What authority, uh, sorry, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Stephen, break down. What, What does that question have to do with anything? Yeah, it's interesting that he goes back to John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, back in chapter 1, telling people, after me comes one who's mightier than I, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And John was baptizing people, but the Pharisees and the religious leaders were already opposed to John back in those days. They didn't like what he was saying, and he was telling them, you brood of vipers, you know, you nest of snakes. And so... He comes back to John, and he's reasoning with them, and he asks them a question that would have put them on the spot. What about the baptism of John? Was that from God, or was that just from people? And their answer, it's interesting. I mean, it's recorded for us what they were saying among themselves. They're not worried about the truth. They're just worried about saving face in front of the people. Because if they say, oh, yeah, it's from God, then he's going to get onto him and say, why didn't you believe him? But if they say, ah, this from man, in other words, John the Baptist wasn't really from God, they were going to be in big trouble with the people. And that's who they're trying to please and who they're trying to control in a lot of ways. And so they want want power. That's what they want. They want the upper hand over the people. And so that's what they're trying to serve is their own personal power. That's right. And so they say, I don't know. And Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. But what's interesting is the question Jesus asked provides the answer to their question. They're asking Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus asks them, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And here's the thing. If they say it's from heaven, then, which it was, the baptism of John was from, from God then they would realize that John is from God. John pointed them to Jesus. So Jesus is from God. And that is the authority that he's using to cleanse the temple. And so in answering their own question, uh, or in answering Jesus's question, they would find the answer to their own question. But in avoiding Jesus's question, he doesn't and- answer. This is, just, this is just such hypocrisy on their part. I mean, who, who reasons this way? I would submit sketchy people, you know, squirmy people reason this way. They just don't want to give in to the truth about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And isn't that what we'll do when we're faced with hard questions about the reality and the truth of God or his son, Jesus, when we don't want to have to submit to their authority and what they say, we will often just play it dumb and say, oh, I don't really want to know about that. I don't know. Um, And that's, that's not an okay answer. We still have to look at the truth, reason through it, and then make a decision based off of those true facts. Right. And, and this question, is it from heaven or from man, is a critical question to ask about whatever topic religiously that we're talking about. Um, this, this church practice, is it from heaven or from man? There are a lot of church practices that come from people. They don't actually come from God. Some of them are harmless, but some of them are harmful. And what we need to be about is handling God's will like Jesus did. He was so careful to only do what he saw the father doing. And if we're constantly asking this question, examining church practices or moral practices and saying, is this from God or is this from man? That will help us tremendously in living under the authority of King Jesus because he is from God and we have to submit to him. Absolutely. Well, this next story, it really, uh, although Jesus didn't, answer their question outright. This next story will answer their question if they're still listening at this point. So let's go ahead and read this next story. And it's in Mark 12. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. This is a little bit of a different kind of parable that Jesus tells. It's not just telling us how to live, but it's showing the hearts of the people that have had God's vineyard up to this point. We won't take the time to go there right now, but if you want to read Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, it provides some of the Old Testament background to the song of the vineyard and how God compared his people to a vineyard, that he had done everything for them. He's the owner of the vineyard. He had provided for the vineyard, done everything. And so some of the imagery Jesus uses, the Jews would have picked up and said, oh yeah, we remember that song from Isaiah. Uh, Yeah, we're tracking with you. But what happens here is, of course, the the people who 
are taking care of the vineyard for the master are terribly wicked people. He is coming to the vineyard for fruit and they're beating and shaming and, and then even killing these messengers that are sent to get the fruit from the vineyard. And of course, finally, the owner sends his own beloved son and they kill him thinking the inheritance will be ours. Which makes no sense, by the way. I don't know why they're thinking that if they kill the son, the inheritance is ours. But I think that's kind of the point of the story. The people's logic is irrational. It doesn't make any sense. They're not thinking through what the owner of the vineyard would want. They start to think more about themselves, and so their actions obviously play that out. And and so the ending question is pretty chilling. In verse 9, what would the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And this is really kind of the point of it, is that God's people, Israel, has had prophet after prophet after prophet sent to them. Some they beat and shamed, some they killed, all through the ages. And now at last God has sent the final prophet, his own beloved son. And they're just about to kill him. And they're going to do that. And then God's going to come in judgment on his vineyard. He's going to come and clean house. Jesus has given a little bit of a foretaste of that by going in and cleansing the temple and driving out those who are you know, making it a place of merchandise and corrupt gain. But God's ultimately going to come in and cleanse the temple by leveling the place. And we'll see that again in the, in the next chapter, chapter 13. But what's interesting to me is how we kind of end where we began with all this. In verse 10, he quotes again from Psalm 118, that same psalm that the people were quoting when they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were quoting Psalm 118 saying, hey, the king is here. Great, the kingdom of David has arrived. And now Jesus quotes Psalm 118, but he quotes a different part of it. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And some of us aren't always accustomed to building houses or building a structure, but whenever you are building a structure in this day and age, you obviously want to build it on a firm foundation. You do rocks and then you do mortar to build it up and so forth. But that cornerstone is so important. It has got all the weight of the house sitting on it. And so what these builders would do, they would have like this big pile of rocks and they would go through and kind of pick up a rock, examine it, look at it, and then throw it to the side until they found the perfect one. So put that image in your head. These builders, they're picking up the rocks, they get one, and it's the perfect rock. It's the one that they need, that everything's going to be built on and be perfect. But then they just cast it aside. That is what these people are doing to Jesus. They have him there. They're looking at him. They're examining him, and they have all the knowledge they really need to be able to say, this is it. But instead, they cast it aside. That's a powerful image. I know that so- it sounds boring kind of when you read it, but when you really slow down and think about that image, it's very vivid. That's right. And so what's going to happen here is the enemies of Jesus are going to end up fulfilling these prophecies that they don't think about, that they're rejecting the Messiah. They think he's a false Messiah, but man, they, they fall right into God's plan 
even in killing the son of God. It's, it's remarkable how Jesus fulfills all of these prophecies here at the climax of his life. And mm-hmm. I was just going to say, and you, you see how aggressive the people start getting with Jesus. Uh, they had been plotting earlier in the chapter, how they might destroy Jesus. And now they're especially, you can see that anger in them getting even more. So they were seeking to seize him, but yet they still feared the people. They understood that the parable was spoken against them. They knew who this was about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they figured it out. It wasn't too hard for them to figure it out. Exactly. And from here, um, in our next episode, we're going to look at how they try to trap Jesus. And before they just come out right to grab him, they're like, well, maybe we can catch him in his words. Maybe we can uh, get him to say something that will get him in trouble for us with the authorities. Right. And that's what we're going to look at next time. Yeah, give him a taste of the, his own medicine. You know, he kind of trapped them in some questions earlier. So now they're going to try and return the favor. Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you all so much for listening today. Um, If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review. Um, If you're interested in studies like this, we're doing more online Bible studies right now. Um, You can check out our Facebook page, Capital City Christians, for more information about that. Again, if you'd like to reach out to us personally, uh, 717-585-0949, capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening today.